today on Let's Talk Limbic Sparks, I'm with Joe Sauer, EVP of Marketing at SongTrader, the world's largest B2B music company on a mission to change the music industry for good through technology, creativity, and transparency. I'm Kevin Perlmutter, Chief Strategist and Founder of Limbic Brand Evolution, a brand strategy and neuromarketing consultancy that taps into emotional insight to strengthen connections between brands and people. The limbic system part of our brain supports emotion, motivation, behavior, and memory. And I'm curious how my guests are creating what I call limbic sparks, which happen when emotional motivation meets brand desire. I love talking with brand leaders who are turning emotional insight into a competitive advantage to drive business growth for the brands that they serve. Joe, my good friend, thank you so much for joining me today. And let's talk Limbic Sparks. Let's do it. Joe, I am so psyched we are doing this today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. We have been friends and collaborators for many years, and I've had the pleasure of seeing your life and your career evolve in really incredible ways. What motivates you and fuels how you move forward? Well, as you know, I'm uh, perennially uh, restless. I'm cursed with the attention span of a cocker spaniel. And so the things that keep me motivated tend to be things that kind of address those character flaws, if you will. So um, it, I think that the biggest motivator in my life is is the simple act of creation, of being able to point to something that that you've created along with a team of people uh, that wasn't there before. And that can take many forms. Uh, it can be a thing that you can actually literally point to, uh, something more figurative, uh, or it can be probably the most important creation in our lives, you know, the act of, of uh, becoming a parent. Um, and so that that idea of, of creating something is really what keeps me motivated, uh, particularly in environments where you can see progress along the way. You know, creation is a process, not an event in most cases, uh, including creating a child. And so being able to see that progress and understand that you are making an impact really fulfills a lot of those reward sensors that uh, that I have, um, and then of course, um, you know, in, in the same way that you know, creating a child is this wonderful source of of joy and and reward. It's also uh, a real motivator uh, from a from a, a guilt perspective, trying to be a great parent and trying to deserve the the kid that you have um, uh, is another massive source of motivation. Uh, this whole idea of um, kind of being motivated by failure rather than by the rewards that come with success. So kind of both sides of the emotional ledger, if you will. Oh, wow. And when it comes to the people who you surround yourself with, what do you value most in those people? What do you seek out? Well, I think the first thing is a willingness to put up with me. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime that you you uh, uh, you know you're working with somebody or or interacting with somebody that has a short attention span that um, uh, that is easily distracted, then the simple act of of <laughs> enduring me is is the the key criteria. I think beyond that, though, on a more serious note, it's it's really empathy that I value most. Um, that emotional communion with somebody communion you know, something that actually goes beyond connection. It's that that interaction and that that sense of oneness. Um, and that can take its form in any relationship in your life, not just um, in personal relationships. It extends to friendships and 
um, and professional relationships as well. So uh, once we get past the hurdle of, of being able to endure me, uh, that that emotional communion, that empathy is really what I value most. That rings a bell. It's <laughs> I'm sure it does. Pavlovian, <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> That's great. Uh, I want to turn our attention to brands, which are a big thing for both of us. Mm -hmm. And we know, you and I know, and have scientifically proven together that the mere mention of a brand name evokes an instinctive feeling or association. So mm -hmm. to help people know a little bit more about you than what you've already shared, can you describe yourself, but do so by only naming a few brands that paint a picture of what you're all about? I really thought that you and I used metaphor elicitation with other people, not with ourselves. But uh, <laughs> let me. Uh, We're let me going down do that it. path. We're finally we doing it together. <laughs> we are. We are. I should turn the tables on you and ask you as well. But um, I think the the first one that comes to mind is um, a company that's really been in the news lately, uh, uh, Patagonia. I think you know I, I grew up in the deep south of the united states and you know we have an old expression that a pioneer is just a farmer with an arrow in his back um and the idea of patagonia is really breaking that that kind of trite metaphor it, it's really a willingness of a founder and an executive team and a board of directors to take a risk to make a difference right not just being in the wrong place at the wrong time or the right place at the right time but literally putting everything you have on the line uh, to try to make a difference in this case in the world. Uh, but again, it could be on any scale, a difference in another person's life, a difference in the marketplace, a difference to, you know, our understanding of what makes us human. Um, that is really one of the common threads that's kind of knit my my career together and something that I I strive to, even if I don't achieve every day. Another one that comes to mind is, um, and maybe, you know, um, uh, not something you'd expect from a, a 50 plus year old bald white man, but uh, the brand Glossier, um, it's a makeup brand uh, for um, some people who might not be familiar with it, uh, but they, um, they really have a very disciplined approach to creativity. It's not creativity for creative sake, um, you know, I mentioned that that whole act of creation and the magic that's involved in that. Um, but I'm not, even though I work for a music company, I'm not a an unbounded creator. Um, my creativity really does happen within uh, the boundaries of, of process and discipline. And I think Glossier has been a brand that's really hit the market in a sensational way, but has continue to ensure that they have that disciplined approach to what they do, everything from product development to marketing to, you know, their infrastructure and IT and everything, you know, what they show outwardly to the marketplace is this minimalist packaging this focused on natural beauty, natural looks over an over embellished type of look. And they're incredibly surgical with their marketing investments and the way that they manage their brand. They they're a small brand. They can't afford, you know, what other big beauty brands like, you know, L'Oreal or Lancome or Estee Lauder can do. So they they're forced to be more surgical, but they're very strategic about it. And um I, I really admire that and and again aspire to have that combination of discipline and, and creativity that that they show every day. And I guess the last one would be um uh, Zappos, uh, the the um, online shoe reseller, 
Um, and interestingly, when you when you start to understand more about the company, they 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 portray themselves as a service company that just happens to sell shoes. And it, it, it struck me that um, that's a really different way of, of identifying what your brand is all about. Um, I, I can't remember how long, about 20 years ago, I think, they actually embarked on a, a company-wide exercise to identify what their corporate values were, their core values. Um, and they they really were um, quite empowering and quite flexible about that whole process. And it, in addition to engaging all of the, the, the people who actually comprised the company, um, they ended up with a list of, of values that really speaks to a lot of people. And they go beyond the simple kind of trite overused values that you see on a lot of corporate mission statements. So some of the ones that, that really strike me are things like, um, create fun and a little weirdness again not have fun create fun like that's a core value of the the company that's incredible um similarly they have one i think called embrace and drive change not just be open to change or you know accommodate change it's actually drive it like embrace it make it part of who we are um do more with less be humble you know th the point is that these core values have stood the test of time. They were developed, over, I think, over 20 years ago or around 20 years ago. They're still the same. They're unchanged. And they wouldn't have lasted that long if the company weren't delivering on them consistently, both internally and externally. And that whole idea of uh, helping those around you be empowered, uh, being flexible in everything, all of your perspectives, all of your points of points of view, uh, to me, it's just something incredibly admirable. Um, and so again, maybe something more aspirational than uh, than actual, uh, but certainly um, uh, painting the picture of what I want to be, if not what I'm all about. I love hearing from my guests what brands they say, and then thinking about the picture that it paints. And this idea of these three brands, uh, Patagonia, which is about exploration and doing good in society, um, Glossier, which is uh, around precision and marketing and understanding things to the point of, of really just getting it right almost scientifically from a behavioral science perspective. And then Zappos in terms of having these inspirational brand ambitions that guide the company. It just it really, I I believe, really tells a cool story of who you are that um, syncs with what I already know. So thank you for that. Definitely. When when you think about it, that's actually really what drew me to Song Trader. You talked about Song Trader a little bit during the intro, um, and one of the phrases that that you used was um, changing the music industry for good. And I loved the the double entendre of that. Like we're, we're changing it for good, meaning we're changing it permanently. There's no going back, right? We're combining technology, creativity, and science um, to change the industry. But we're also changing it for good, for beneficial outcomes, um, for the artists that we serve, for the brands that we partner with. Um, we're you know really trying to have a social dimension to everything we do. And if you look at each of those three companies, um, they each have that same kind of thread running through them. They express it in different ways that manifest itself in different ways, but it's something that they all share. And that's something that I'm really, really drawn to in those three brands as, as well as one of the, the things that really drew me to song trader. I, it's, it's so great when we can 
find places to work and spend our time that sync with our values. And I'm going to want to talk about Song Trader a bit. But before we go there, I'm curious about the common thread and the growing themes in your career progression. You've gone from consulting work at Deloitte to marketing and research at Vonage and behavioral science research at Sentient Decision Science and now Song Trader. What's been that growing theme in your career progression? Well, I wasn't the cool kid in school. And maybe you didn't think I would go that far back since you started with Deloitte. But um, I think, you know, what happens in childhood and, and adolescence really does shape our worldview to a certain extent. It, it's it's malleable in most people, but um, that's really what propels us uh, at the early part of our career. And because I wasn't a cool kid, I, I ended up becoming this kind of relentless social observer. You know, I wanted to really understand quite deeply what what made some people or some things cool and others boring or more pedestrian. Um, you know, when I looked at my own behavior, why was I willing to pay, you know, this much or maybe this much more for, you know, this particular product or service, but not the same for a competing product or service? Really wanting to, to understand why we behave the way we do as human beings. Um I've never met a puzzle that I didn't like. And to me, human behavior just felt like any other puzzle. You know, once you solve the puzzle, then you can use the power of that knowledge to really understand how to anticipate or predict behavioral response. Um, and where, you know, the course of my career, the applications of that knowledge has changed from just trying to fit in and be cool as a teenager uh, to now really trying to help uh, brands and um, other types of organizations really leverage uh, the ability to anticipate responses to different things that they might do in the marketplace. Um, and so uh, although I, I would never call my career progression a deliberate one, I have kind of moved opportunistically. Um, what I've realized in hindsight is that it has allowed me, each stop along the way has allowed me to master a lot of different domains, you know, quantitative methods and marketing strategy at Deloitte, cognitive psychology at Sentient, technology at Vonage, neuroanatomy, all of those different disciplines that kind of come together when we're studying things like the impact of emotion on human behavior and how to anticipate uh, uh, behavioral response to different types of sensory experiences. Um, and so it's... Um, you know, one of those great situations I find myself in where I look back and uh, despite trials and tribulations along the way, I recognize the value of of every stop um, along the way in kind of giving me the, the opportunity that I have now. And so that that uh, is, is really what's been the consistent theme throughout all that. I love hearing that. And it's so true. There there are stops along the way. And this, despite the details of those, you take something with you and you carry it forward into something new. And it's an, it's incredible. It's incredible. Mm. And I want to talk about Song Trader now. So let's sure. talk about your role at Song Trader and, and what makes um, you know what you're doing there so exciting. When I was um, at Sentient, we did a lot of work um, really isolating and quantifying the impact of emotion on consumer behaviors. And um, those the emotional responses that we measured were really the product of different types of sensory input from a mercantile perspective that could be advertising or um, uh, 
brand claims, product claims. It could be testing response uh, on an emotional level to a new product concept or a new feature. Um, it, it, the, it, how human beings actually respond to brands. What is the impact of a brand on uh, the way that we think, the way that we make decisions, the way we evaluate alternatives? And the focus at Sentient was really on a, the, the full array of sensory input, you know, sight, taste, smell, sound, and so on. And I realized um, over time that what I really was the most interested in was uh, the area of sound and music specifically. Uh, it, not only is it an incredibly under-researched area, both scientifically as well as uh, commercially, but it's one of the areas that uh, brands and businesses uh, have kind of left wanting. It's brands will spend millions of dollars uh, over the years on main building, main developing, maintaining their visual identity, right? But they don't tend to spend the same amount of effort, energy, time, or money on their sonic identity, what their brands sound like. And the, the, just the opportunity to make a real difference in evolving our understanding of the impact sound has on our behaviors. Uh, was really what drew me to Song Trader. And that's, in fact, what we're doing is um, understanding on a deeply subconscious level what impact sound and music have on uh, consumer behavior, um, rain, you know, using uh, projects or working on projects that range from the kinds of sounds that are deliberately introduced to uh, an electric vehicle. Um, so a real social dimension to that, you know, trying to save lives, literally, um, uh, right on through to uh, healthcare type projects. Can we use different types of music in a post-operative uh, hospital environment to speed or accelerate uh, post-surgical recovery? So again, the use of music, not just to achieve commercial outcomes, how do I sell more of this particular product, but to also try to deliver uh, socially beneficial outcomes. And those are really the projects that that get me the most excited, that get me the most engaged. But um, generally speaking, it's just that that idea that sound is under-researched and very much under-leveraged. And so if you're producing a spot that's targeted at a certain audience, you need to make musical choices that are not only aligned with your brand, but also captivating and engaging to that particular audience. And it really makes the job of choosing music for a general population type of broadcast TV ad quite challenging. That raises the bar. How do you pick a piece of music that is brand aligned, audience aligned, and narratively aligned, especially when the universe of music at your disposal is 200 million tracks? It's virtually impossible without technology and tools and data to support that decision. And so that's what we're doing. We're actually looking at music and infusing intelligence and data into the metadata around each of those tracks so that they're eminently analyzable by very efficient analytical tools like artificial intelligence and machine learning to be able to make your music smarter, to go from simply picking music to picking a piece of smart music that actually uh, increases or maximizes, optimizes the performance of that particular piece of creative. Doing that at pace and at scale is really all about combining the creativity with the data, the creativity with the technology and the science.
Um, and we're one of the only companies that's um, that's doing it in a really defensible and demonstrable way. It's unbelievable to hear all of this and to be, I know you love being on the cutting edge of things and this is really incredible. So you're at, you're mm-hmm. on the cutting edge of where the music industry is going for brands and marketing. Um, but you've also throughout your career have been on the cutting edge of behavioral science research and you're now combining those two. I want to turn to the research side for a second. Um, in fact, you've done award-winning innovation, award-winning research in the field of behavioral science research, some of which I've been very happy to be a part of with you. Uh, what have been your biggest aha moments when it comes to understanding consumer behavior as a result of all of these newer behavioral science-based technologies that you've been a part of? I think for me, the the biggest aha moment was was less of an epiphany and more of a growing awareness of the extent to which we're not really rational as human beings, but by the same token, we're not entirely irrational either. We are really the product of both of those thought processes. And so when we're trying to understand behavior, why we do the things we do, why we make the decisions we do, we really have to take both of those domains, both of those modes of thought into account. We can't uh, swing the pendulum one way or the other. We can't uh, use methods or or rationales that are entirely focused on uh, explicit or conscious uh, influences over decision-making. But by the same token, we can't do the same thing with our irrationality. So you know, we always in in our field, we we see these estimates of 95% of decision-making is irrational. And that's actually not scientifically defensible. That was a number thrown out by a consultant about 20 years ago that simply picked up and popularized. Um, We, every decision is different. Every decision has a different blend of rational and irrational influences. And if we're really going to understand consumer behavior, understand why we make the decisions we do, you have to understand each decision in its context and and really study rational drivers and, and irrational or emotional drivers uh, separately and then bring them together uh, in, a, in a defensible way. And so if we really want to um, have a more profound and, and uh, accurate understanding of behavior, uh, understanding both of those domains is, uh, is crucial. And unfortunately, those domains have been studied and analyzed as if they were the separate and single source of the truth. And in fact, they both contribute something. And so it's the the melding or integration of those two domains that helps us truly understand behavior. And that was the the, the growing uh, understanding, the growing awareness yeah. uh, that underpins everything we know about behavior. So as brand leaders try to sort through all of this information and sometimes misinformation about how the brain works, and this blending of the irrational and the rational, what is it that they really need to be thinking of? What are the KPIs that they should be focused on? Because we have this flow toward brand equity building, and we have this flow toward performance marketing and ROI and you know short-term vanity metrics. How mm-hmm. do you how do brand leaders blend the two? What should they be focused on? Yeah, it's a, you know that's really where the 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 rubber hits the road as it were if you take a uh, you know a traditional kind of balanced scorecard approach to this KPI question 
what you end up with is a whole series of metrics that correspond to rational influences over our brand preferences and our decisions. And then a whole series of metrics that, that really uh, speak to the emotional response to my brand. And the question from a managerial perspective is, how do I make decisions when those two things actually contradict each other? You know, human beings are this wonderful source of contradiction. You know, we we do things against our own, you know, uh, our own good uh, a lot. Um, and so if I take that traditional multi-KPI balanced approach that looks at rational metrics and looks at emotional metrics, um, I'm forced often to choose which I believe more, which one do I put more credence in. Historically, you know, our, our, uh, our, our Western bias towards logic and rationality would have said, well, I place more uh, more weight on the rational KPIs. Our recent move towards swinging the pendulum to the emotional side of the ledger now means that I believe or I trust or I put more faith in the emotional metrics. The reality is your only KPI that really matters from a brand perspective is the integration of those two. Taking my rational preferences between uh, competing brands and weighting them somehow with an emotional uh, factor that integrates rational response and emotional response. If you think about it, that's the way our brains work. We actually make decisions. We have preferences and make decisions based on the integration of rational considerations and emotional influences. And so your KPI, and I, I would call it a single KPI, has to be exactly that, some metric that integrates both rational considerations and emotional influences over those considerations. We have a particular research-based metric that we use called emotional brand preference. You and I developed and, and applied that to the music space uh, you know, quite successfully. Um, and so at SongTrader, we're continuing to, to use that as the core metric against which we evaluate everything that we do, whether it's a sonic logo, whether it's a music track for a particular ad or uh, a, a um, brand activation campaign that includes sound and music in some way, shape or form. It all boils down to that one integrative metric that takes emotion and rational response into the same model. It's so cool to hear. I'm curious uh, with all of this information that's out there around the power of emotion and our collective understanding that it is usually what is left out of the decision-making process for most brand leaders. Why do you think some brand leaders are still neglecting the power of emotional insights in their approach to growing their business? I'm reminded of an old ad campaign, an ad slogan, actually, um, in the, uh, the technology space. And you may remember it, but it was um, an ad campaign for IBM. And the tagline was, nobody got fired for buying IBM, right? And so it was this whole risk aversion idea, right? Like let's race to the bottom because we're scared to stick our necks out. And so I think that that's the core of why a lot of brands still neglect the power of emotion, the, you know, particularly from my perspective, the, the influence of music and sound over emotion um, because, uh, there's a sense of risk. This is something that's new, novel, and let's let other companies figure it out. Let's let it become mainstream before we adopt it. We're not going to be the the pioneer, you know, the 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 farmer with the arrow in his back. Um, and so I think 
that's that sense of risk attached to the novelty uh, is a big part of it. I think beyond that, though, it goes into maybe faulty perceptions about um, the cost and the time it takes to do these things. You know, there are certainly neuro-based research methods that involve sensors and, you know, recruiting samples of people to come into a lab. And those methods can be quite expensive and can take a lot of time. But what we're using is the power of uh, uh, methods like implicit association testing, which are computer-based psychology experiments, where we can build large samples on a global basis that generate um, uh, data that has no you know, cultural or linguistic bias um, that actually fit in to the typical production cycle of an ad development, uh, you know, an ad uh, development campaign or uh, campaign development process. And so when you start to address the validity of the methods, the risk of relying on inappropriate methods uh, as opposed to traditional methods, and then the, the correcting the perceptions about the cost and time associated with them, um, most of our clients, when they sit down to actually assess, understand, and make decisions on that basis are choosing this kind of an approach. And it creates a powerful distinction for them in the marketplace because we can demonstrate how they're starting to, to take a lead. They're starting to edge away, pull ahead of, of their competition because they simply understand the full set of drivers of consumer behavior in a much more accurate and actionable way. Wow. And what do you believe then are the best ways to create limbic sparks, those moments when emotional motivation meets brand desire? What should brand leaders be thinking about? Well, I like listening to you answer this question because you have a really, you know, compelling and persuasive way of, of articulating it. If I, if I, you know, try to be the pale imitator of, of a lot of the things that you preach, I think the the, the first uh, the first way to create those limbic sparks is storytelling, right? Um, I can I can regurgitate. Uh, specifications and features and functions and even benefits to you uh, in a bullet list. But telling them to you, illustrating them with a story is a, an incredibly more powerful way to trigger an emotional response and create a connection that goes beyond that product or service that I'm selling you, that I'm marketing to you. Um, we know that uh, memory, the formation of memory. So encoding in memory and then a ease of recall of that memory is really optimized or maximized in periods of profound emotional experiences. This is why we can remember uh, quite vividly where we were on 9-11 or the birth of a child or our wedding day, you know, these profoundly emotional events embed or encode those events, those time periods in our memories. Brands have the same opportunity, but they have to tell compelling stories. They can't simply talk at you. They have to engage you in a narrative. And that's something that uh, is almost a truism in the advertising industry and yet still gets neglected. We see, you know, campaign after campaign that, that professes to understand this, but then doesn't execute on it. One of the areas that they don't execute on these campaigns that don't work, um, which is crucial for the limbic spark to happen um, and to actually be more than a spark to actually catch fire, you know, brand fire, brand desire um, is authenticity. Um, 
again, talking about generations, I don't think there's been a more cynical or skeptical generation uh, than the ones that have come behind us, you know, whatever cohort you want to uh, apply it to. But if you talk to, to teens and 20-somethings today, there is um, a, a real rejection of anything that doesn't sound completely authentic, even a hint of inauthenticity. It's, it's almost like they can, they can smell it a mile away. And so if you're going to be genuine, if you're going to be honest, or if you're going to be successful, you have to be genuine and honest. Your, your communications have to really truly represent the brand. And it's no, no coincidence that you know, we see uh, phenomena uh, emerging in the last several years around things like greenwashing or pride washing or just tone deafness um, that, that really manifest in this inauthenticity that, that causes brands to really suffer and lose a lot of their equity in the marketplace. And then the final one for me is, you know, I, I, I am who I am focused on sound and music. Uh, so I think, you know, we, we talk a lot about omni-channel marketing, but a lot of that omni-channel marketing is unisensory. It's still very visual. And so if you're going to create a spark, if you're going to achieve a, a level of profundity with the stories that you're telling, you have to engage more senses in your marketing than simply visual. And so... Uh, you know, the easiest additional sense to layer into your marketing is sound. It's tough to create an ad that tastes. It's tough to create an ad that smells um, in a certain way, but it's really easy to create an ad that that has sound. In fact, you're probably already doing it today. And so if you really want to move from a creating a spark to catching brand desire, brand fire, um, you have to you have to use multi-sensory marketing in your omni-channel campaigns. It's not just about reach of your campaign and consistency across channels. It's about leveraging every single element of a sensory response to your stories. Wow. Uh, and so integrating sound and music uh, are absolutely critical, not just important, but absolutely critical to doing that. Wow, man. And you know I'm a believer. Um, I'm curious, one last question. Sure. As a brand leader... What is it that you know now you wish you knew years ago, perhaps something that others can learn from? Um, as you progress in your career, never stop being curious and asking why. Never think you know the answers. Um, keep learning. Uh, make sure you surround yourself with people that are smarter than you are. Um, and just that, that, innate restlessness and curiosity to understand why, 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 why. The minute you think you have something figured out, something's going to happen to change it. <laughs> and, and, you know, you're back to square one. And so the really the only skill you have that will help you move from company to company, industry to industry, job to job, situation to situation, is that that curiosity and that humility to to keep learning. Um, there was a time in my career when I kind of turned that off. I felt like I'd progressed to the level of expert. So I was supposed to say and do and direct. Um, in reality, um, what I needed to have, have been doing at those points was actually double down on the curiosity, double down on the why, um, and continue that learning process. Um, and so I hope that's a hard one lesson for me that uh, any of your listeners can can benefit from. 
Oh man, I'm sure they will. And Joe, this has been such an incredible conversation. Thank you so much for joining me today on Let's Talk Limbic Sparks. Well, Kevin, I have to say, you know, uh, I think you're up to like 25 or 26 now. You're 26. 26. So after I overcame the disappointment of not being, you know, in the top five, I figured it was, I would, would just be well served to be patient and wait my turn. So it's been an absolute privilege and an honor to join you. And uh, as always, um, we could we could fill any amount of time that we have. So I hope in some way, shape or form, this has been beneficial for anyone else that's uh, that's listening in to us ramble on. I know it has been. Thank you, Joe, so much. My pleasure. For more, go to limbicsparks.com.